Drink and Read presents War and Peace, Volume 4, Part 3, Chapters 1 through 19. All my Russians in Moscow, the French are gone, so let's get down. It's just Pierre and Denisov against the music. Uh-huh, don't forget me. Hey, Petya, ooh. Hey, Delikov. Yeah. Are you ready? Uh-huh. Are you Pierre? Yeah, let's go. And no one cares. The French have taken their shot, got out of our face. Go to hell, mon frères. Pierre sweating up all in this place. But no one's here. Petty as the only one shaking it in this space. And Kutuzov don't care. Hear the crash of the cannonballs match their pace. I'm up against the rubble trying to sneak through the wreckage. I want to hold them alive. Want to hold them alive. If you really want a battle, then saddle up on your pony. I'll meet you in the field, but I'm looking for my wife. Where's my future wife? Hey, hey, hey. All my Russians in Moscow, let me see you dance. All my Russians wanting more, let me see you dance. All my Freemasons round and round, let me see you dance. All the Russians in the crowd, let me see you dance. Pray on the floor, pray on your soul, no matter what you do, don't lose control. Cause if you want some bodies in this wartime party, hey Pierre, I know a song we can dance all night long. Hey Pierre, I hear you're gonna lose control. Come over here, I got some Frenchmen to show ya. Mr. Bezikov, I'd rather see you bet your soul. Thought you were kind of hot, but you didn't take a shot. Hello, I'm Jonathan Kwiatkowski, and we're about to read some good shit. Welcome back to another episode of Drink and Read, your favorite, I hope so, war and peace recap podcast. It's been a week as we race towards the end of Tolstoy's masterwork, War and Peace, and I just want to thank you again, yet again, or if this is your first time, welcome you to the podcast. Thank you for joining me. Last time, as we were reading together, we saw that Napoleon entered Moscow, tried to set up some rules, and immediately got spit in the face and decided to abandon Moscow then and there. Kutuzov was trying to pick up the scraps of his army in order to usher... Napoleon out of their country, but the Russians couldn't resist taking a few parting shots, and Pierre had another midlife religious revelation. That was a mouthful. He hung out with an old dude, got on a march, sat in a field, and looked at the stars and realized that the whole world is a prison, but he is no prisoner. I'm thoroughly convinced that he saw that episode of The Simpsons where Bart sells his soul to Milhouse and then gets it back. Lisa gets it back for him, and then Bart is all peachy keen for the rest of his life, or at least that episode. Today we're going to be inching closer and closer ever still to the immortal epilogue with Volume 4, Part 3, Chapters 1 through 19. But before we do, as always, drink and read, there are two sections that I must address. First being the appendices. What did I mistakenly say in my drunken stupor last time? Well, it was a short section. That was like a 20-something minute episode. Those chapters flew by and they were literally just a page, so I probably butchered some names as always, but a 
aside from that, I think I did a good job. I think I could have explained um, Kutuzov's general setup a little bit more, that the changing of hands has occurred. There's more new generals here who are seeking glory under Kutuzov's nose, but he doesn't really give a damn, so I didn't dwell on them too long. I apologize to General Dokaturov, I butchered your name, along with many others, I'm sure, but as I said, very short section, not a lot that I could have missed there. This is Drink and Read, though, and you know I must be drinking, and what should I have on my bar cart that's been sitting around for a long time? Goes against all my nature of humanity, but it's a time for celebration. The French are on their way out, we're gonna meet some characters that we haven't seen in a few chapters. I am drinking a Cherry Blossom, which is a mix of grenadine, vodka, and some cherry schnapps. It is far too sweet for me. It is probably going to make me sick later, so I'm just sipping on that right now. I will not be downing another. I'm not a fan of sweet drinks. There, I said it. Attack me. Please attack me. Hello, daddy. Hello, mom. It's me, your ch 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 cherry bomb. Hello, world. I'm a wild girl, especially when I'm reading War and Peace, so let us continue on with the novel with volume four, part three, chapters one through nineteen. Chapter one. You know the drill, it's a new volume, new chapter, new section, whatever you want to call it, and what does Tolstoy do? Alright, here's a little war history about how the historians saw things and how they're full of bullshit. It's like meeting up with an old friend every week. An old friend who couldn't care less who won or lost battles in history. Tolstoy ex-historian suggests that history is written by the victors, and that this was a trend that continued through the dawn of time. Someone conquered, took the rights away from a country, was conquered, repeat, 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 until 1812 when the Russians stood up to the French and spat in their face. There's a lot of spitting in this face this episode, sorry about that. Turn the tide is a better saying. Whoever this narrator may be suggests that it took the world by storm, that the French didn't conquer Russia and destroy the entire country spirit, but instead the French lost their 600,000-man army. But no one can take credit for this, not the general, not the people fighting, but something else invisible to mankind is at end here, in control of the scenario behind the scenes. Could it be fate? Could it be the people of Russia? I don't know. They switch gears and give us a nice duel analogy. Imagine war was like a fencing match, but a fencing match to the death. The two fencers are there, they know the rules, they're in their poise, whatever, they're going back and forth with their swords, when suddenly, one of these fencers is sure that they are going to lose their life. So they look around them, they pick up a club and start branching that. Who would win, the desperate one or the one that's followed the rules the entire time? Whatever the outcome should have been, this Battle of Borodino threw a wrench in all of the plans for the French and the Russian, and changed warfare. One final jab at the French here, they're on the go, you expect them to follow their rules and decorum, but they're in a desperate situation, they pick up their clubs, and they respond with a counterattack. Chapter 2, what happens in a war when you have scattered people all around a battlefield charging at someone who's in mass? Not in mass as in, like, a holy place of worship, but E-N-M-A-S-S-E, in mass, together as a group. Why then you get partisan warfare! Yay! That's essentially the definition of it, and it's a tried and true militaristic definition, we've seen it before. There are two different camps or sciences here, militaristic science, that the strength of an army is identical to its numbers, or military science says that the bigger the army, the stronger the army. 
but this isn't true necessarily the 100% of the time. We saw that the Russians were, in the Battle of Borodino, had less men than the French, and that seemed to benefit them greatly in the long run of things. Even though they lost a city, the French kind of got scared off and are on their way out. So this narrator proposes that there is a hidden value somewhere in warfare, this mysterious X. This X is determined to be the spirit of the people fighting. So break out your cheer squads and your elite beat agents. If you are morale to fight, then you are destined to win. Then they give us some crazy math theory that I've never heard before. The spirit of an army is the multiplier of the mass that yields the product of force. Is that true? Any physicists out there, do you know that equation? Is that in any of your books? And then they legitimately do math with this imaginary equation for... A paragraph or two? The rest of the chapter? Okay. I get it, you're giving us an example so it's easier to understand, but I think you're going a little bit too deep with this. Long story short, the French, since they had their masses bunched together, was thought to have won this battle, but their spirits and morale were so low that the Russians had an easy time picking them off. Chapter 3, we're back in Smolensk again. And the Russians, fueled by rage, are taking no prisoners. On the battlefield, if you're straggling, if you're a looter, you're gonna get got. When they do catch up to the people who are behind in the French army, they compare it to shaking a tree and picking up the dead leaves. When the war started, most of these Russians were afraid, they were cautious, but now they're just jumping in and getting bloody. And who's caught up in the middle of this? Our nice boy, Natasha's first, Denyazov. Well, first after Boris. We don't count him. Wait a second, did it take me this long? Boris and Natasha? Rocky and Bulwinkel? Moose and Squirrel? Denyazov is there, along with Dolokhov, who we haven't seen in a hot minute. Glad to see that he survived. Hopefully his character arc survived with him. And they're ready to attack a convoy. Two people who are higher up in the ranks than Denyazov ask him to join their sides and take in the glory. Denyazov refuses to answer this question directly and says that he and his own private force is going to take this convoy for themselves. All day, his private force with Dolokhov have been dipping in and out of forests, keeping an eye on where the French are and taking some supplies and men who are straggling into the forest so they can be better prepared to attack this convoy. They want to do this in order to get a better hand on the situation to not startle the French and so they can overtake them all and kill and capture them at the same time. Denyazov sends Dolokhov out to report on the numbers of troops. He says there's about 1,500 troops there, so it is a large amount. But Denyazov wants to be prepared, so he goes, we need to capture a tongue, someone who can translate and speak to us in our language, and we can understand what kind of soldiers they are before we, you know, get overwhelmed or we bite off more than we can chew. So Denyazov says, let's chill here for a bit, just take our time and not blow this. Chapter 4, Denyazov and his captain, Levaisky, are running out on their horses to get a lay of the land. And Denyazov is riding his horse awkwardly. Maybe he's not made for the bloodshed. This captain, on the other hand, Levaisky, is looking perfect on a horse. The epitome of captainness. Denyazov is not in a good mood because it's pouring rain, making their taking of this convoy very difficult. He still hasn't heard back from Dolokhov, who hasn't procured a translator to tell them what kind of soldiers are guarding this convoy and everything's stacking up, so he's in a pissy mood. We can forgive him for this. Two people are coming and they don't want to be discovered, so they run off to the side and hide while watching and waiting for these two people to identify themselves. 
One of these young captains turns out to be a familiar face. He hands a letter to Denyazov saying it's from the general. And then Denyazov reads the letter, which is just another warning, like don't strike without knowing the full information, which Denyazov knows. And then we find out this is Petya Rostov still hanging in there. Denyazov's like, Petya, oh my goodness gracious, it's been forever. You were just a kid and now you're still a kid, but I was into your sister. Why didn't you tell me your name first? And Petya's just like, I don't really know who you are, dude, sorry. JK, he's overwhelmed with joy in seeing Denyazov because he had to go on this errand, which took him over French lines, so he was worried about it, but it was successful, so he's happy to see a familiar face. And Denyazov is just like, oh my god, I love the Rostovs, I stan. Pyatya doesn't want to go off to his general where he's put on the front lines of war again, so he asks Denyazov, can I say? Denyazov says, what did your general say about it? And Petya replies, the general didn't say anything, so I think I could stay till tomorrow like it's a fucking sleepover or something. Denyazov says, yeah, sure, why not? So the captains, Denyazov, Petya, a few Russian hussars, and a prisoner in tow all head off to Shamshiro. Chapter 5, as the group pauses to rest on a grassy knoll somewhere, they look over the knoll and they see a manor house, and around the manor house, the French are evidently making camp there. Denyazov calls for the prisoner, which is this young boy who's like, why am I here in the first place? And they don't really threaten him, they just ask him, do you know what kind of soldiers there are? And this young boy is very shy, puts his hand in his pocket, swivel his ankle, and just makes the doe eyes. This boy doesn't really know, and Denyazov's like, ugh, fine, I guess we'll figure it out ourselves then. And Pyatya, ever known for his young hot-headedness, is like, whether Dolokhov shows up or not, we could take them! Look, they're just sitting there, by surprise! Denyazov sees the opportunity, but also recognizes the fact that if they bring their cavalry over here, they're going to get bogged down in the swamps, literally, so they need to be patient and wait. Suddenly, there's a commotion of French people yelling, and they spy a Russian soldier by the name of Tikhon, not to be confused with the other Tikhon that we know that's the butler for the Volkonsky estate, I believe? Well, anyways, Tikhon is running for his life, and Denyazov looks and says, don't worry about him, he's our scout coming to give us the information we need. Tikhon's being pursued by the French who are shooting at him, he dives into the river, swims to the other side, and then the French stop at the other side of the river, going, I'm not gonna get les shoes dirty. Tikhon's backstory is explained where he worked his way up the ranks, he was a lowly soldier, and then he actually made a very good scout and spy, so he spends time between the Russians and the French. At night, he steals from the French and gives to the Russians. Tikhon is seen by a hero throughout this party, and uh, he has an amusing story where once a French person that he was going to capture shot him in the butt, and the only way that Tikhon would treat the wound is by pouring vodka on it to the merriment of all around. Um, maybe you should get that butt wound checked out. Is this my big fat Russian wedding instead of my big fat Greek wedding? Instead of Windex, we spray vodka on wound? Tikhon's latest job was to infiltrate the French camp and bring back a tongue. Not a honest-to-god tongue, but someone who can translate between them and give them the right information. Evidently, Tikhon had been discovered, and this is what Denizov and the company had just witnessed. I just enjoy how this entire chapter is about this dude named Tikhon, who's apparently a great asset for the Russian army, but that's all we're going to hear about him. Chapter 6, Denyazov reconvenes with Tikhon, who says, I had a good tongue, but he wasn't good enough and I would only give you the best, so I'm going to go get another one. He tried to get a better informant, but when he tried to do it, four French soldiers tried to beat the crap out of him, and that's why he had to flee in the first place. And here we are now. He's jokingly saying that his first informant wasn't good enough because they mocked him and called him gap-toothed and 
Honestly, Denyazov deserved the best. Denyazov is fuming, going, We're in a desperate situation, sir. You should just bring the first one you see. Tikhon goes, Just wait till tonight. I'll get you one, two, even three informants. Everybody's laughing at this, but then Petya gets in his mind that Tikhon has killed a man before, and this upsets Petya. Petya takes a gander at the first prisoner, being this captive little drummer boy, and goes, Uh-oh, will we wind up killing him too? Denyazov is informed that Dolokhov is on the way, so this lends some good spirits to him. He turns to Petya and goes, Boy, tell me what's up. We haven't seen each other for a while. Let's catch up. Chapter 7. How did Petya feel when he got thrown into war? Well, he never had a better time in his life. He was super excited to head off into the fighting, and when his general asked for someone to volunteer to be sent over to Denyazov, Petya practically begged to be given the chance. And Pietya is described as not a very good soldier. He goes against orders, he puts himself in the line of fire multiple times, so this general goes, eh, go ahead, maybe we'll kill two birds with one stone. And he won't be returning anytime soon, but here's a little, uh, you know, message delivery system that I'm going to set up for you. And Petya rode out with the intent to return at the first opportunity, but then he met Denyazov, and then despite respecting his general forever, he then compares him to trash. He goes, oh, he's trash. He's a German. He doesn't understand. Denyazov is my new hero. Everybody's sitting down, chilling, getting a sample to nosh on. They've got vodka. They've got rum. They've got bread. Roast mutton with salt. It's shaping up to be quite the party. Petya is in the position at this party that he never shuts up. He's exclaiming like, Oh, I'm so glad that I get to stay with all you fine fellows on the eve of a battle that's fast approaching. Here, look at my pocket knife. Take it, I've got plenty to spare. Then he goes on a tangent about coffee pots and raisins and how he has the best raisins and don't you want some? I've still got many, so take your share of them. He's the same exuberance of youth that we've seen in Natasha previously in the novel, so I guess it runs in the family. Must have skipped Vera's generation, though I can't imagine her getting down. Petya shows his heart, and at least feels bad because this person is um, a similar age to him, and calls over the little drummer boy prisoner and says, He should eat too, we should treat our prisoner okay. And this poor little drummer boy by the name of Vincent has had his name changed multiple times that day to Visenya, Viceni. It just doesn't stay Vincent. Petya can speak French and goes, come in, little one, come eat. We're not going to hurt you or harm you. This French boy is very grateful. But Petya sees that he's not in the best condition or state and ponders what can he do for this boy without drawing attention to himself and says, eh, maybe I'll tip him off with a few coins later. Chapter 8, they give the drummer boy a little Russian outfit and say that he's not going to be kept with the other prisoners so he can just hang out and eat to his fill. And Petya would be, you know, comforted by this, but then he's distracted because our boy, Deathwish Dolokhov, comes onto the scene once more. And Dolokhov is looking good! He's clean-shaven, well-dressed, and Petya goes, Oh, this is different from the Dolokhov that I'm familiar with. And Dolokhov agrees that they need to know what type of soldiers they're going to be fighting in order to take this convoy. Yes, we've been talking about this for six chapters. Please, for the love of goodness, figure it out. Dolokhov says that he will go on a recon mission to figure it out. And Petya goes, ooh, take me, choose me, pick me. Dolokhov turns up his nose at Petya like, ugh, this little count here, 16 year old, and thinks that he can rule the world. What are you even doing here? And Petya goes, I was just trying to be nice because I think you're cool. 
Delikov gives a little snide remark about cutting the niceties and getting rid of your prim and proper nature, little Petya, because what do you care about this little French boy here? Are you sorry for him? Are you scared that he's gonna die? Well, guess what, bub? I've been taken prisoners multiple times, and look at me. I managed to survive, come out on top, and you know, remain an asshole that I once was. Petya is almost in tears, and he's trying to look for Denyazov for support, but then he vows within his heart that he's gonna go off with Dolokhov, and this is a poor decision, Petya. You've made it so close to the end of this novel. I really hope that nothing unfortunate happens to you. Just reminds me of Tu Wang Fu, little Russian boy in uniform. Why are you crying? So against his Denyazov and Dolokhov's better judgment, Petya rides off with Dolokhov in chapter 9. They put on French uniforms, and Petya goes, If I'm captured, I won't be going down without a fight. I've got a gun. Dolokhov goes, Shut up, you idiot, and don't speak Russian, speak French. They're stopped by French people who ask for the password, but Dolokhov goes for a general making the rounds. No one gives a password, bomb. And the Frenchmen are like, Oh, he must be higher ranking than us, I guess. They stumble upon the general and Dolokhov gives a little tale that they are French soldiers and behind in their regiment and they just want to know where this specific general is. And the French are, they're open to this, even though they're strangers. They go, you're a little late for the dinner soup, but if you stick around, we can rustle up something for you. I know there's hundreds and hundreds of men, but wouldn't you recognize that maybe these two, you haven't seen them around before, but whatever. I guess it's dark. They're speaking French. Petya has a feeling that Dolokhov is going to back down and be like, he's gotten information. But no, Dolokhov just cleanly and plainly asks, how many soldiers are in this regiment? What kind of soldiers are there? What are you doing next Tuesday? What's your favorite breakfast? Getting all this information out of them. And Petya is sweating, watching from a distance. And then he's like, oh my God, Dolokhov, you're going to get caught. What are you doing? He lets out this Russian-style laugh that's evident, like I'm a Russian posing as a Frenchman. But no one seems to pick up on that but Petya. Delikov demands that their horses be brought to them and they're on the way out and Delikov goes bonjour messieurs which is hello and then Petya wants to correct him and be like bonsoir messieurs is the correct phrase but thinks against his better judgment and doesn't say anything and then they're um riding through town or this little encampment that the French got going and they find these Russian soldiers that are taken prisoners by the French and they decide like maybe during the battle tomorrow they can come and free them to increase their numbers or save them later on and then Dolokhov bids Petya goodbye go back tell Denyazov that the first shot is going to occur at tomorrow morning and Petya is so full of emotion so enamored by Dolokhov that he reaches forward with his body and Dolokhov says, it may be dark, but do you want to kiss me right now? And the two kiss, I don't think in like an affectionate, passionate sort of way, more like, oh, you, we're brothers in arms. You've just, you know, stolen my heart with your war prowess. Um, can we share a smooch right now? And I'm kind of for this. And then Dolokhov kisses him. Both of them laugh and they go their separate ways. That's an odd custom, but what do I know? Say la vie. Chapter 10, after smooching on Dolokhov, Petya returns to tell Denyazov the good news, and Denyazov is overjoyed, whether it's to see Petya or the fact that, you know, the, all this crisis will be solved tomorrow morning, we're not sure. I'd like to think that he has a soft place in his heart for the young Rostov boy because he loved his sister, but that's my opinion. 
Petya cannot sleep. He's talking to his horse, saying that we're going to be doing some great work tomorrow. And then he stumbles upon a Russian soldier by the name of Likachev. And they get talking because Petya is full of childlike exuberance, even though he's probably going to meet an end in a horrible battle tomorrow. He doesn't seem to register that. But this dude says, I'll sharpen your sword for you. Give it here. And Petya does so. And he's just thinking about the poor French drummer boy who's still being held captive. But Petya is still acting an innocent boy, and he's trapped in his imagination, you know, making stories up of himself in the battle tomorrow that probably won't come to fruition. And this is a common thread that most of our young boys who are exposed to war a little bit too early in their lives get the wake-up call to. And whether from excitement or an honest, like, beginnings of a panic attack, he sits down and starts rocking back and forth, and we get this... Shortest sentence in the book, and it's very powerful because it looks as if it's going to rain on this morning, and Tolstoy just tells us, drops dripped. Petya, with his sword being sharpening, goes in between the realm of waking and sleep, and he's imagining he's hearing a symphony being played. It reminds him of his sister's Natasha beautiful singing, and he goes, oh, well, I must be dreaming while I'm awake now. And Petya is experiencing this emotion of synesthesia where he's hearing colors and seeing sounds and he's commanding his dream. But before he knows it, the Russian man who's been sharpening his sword next to him nudges him and says, it's done, young master. And then he wakes up and goes, oh, it's morning already. So the dream is ruined. And I have a feeling that this childlike innocence, this small vignette of a very beautiful scene, is not going to end all that well for Petya. Chapter 11, Denyazov is getting ready and yelling at the people to get to work, and Petya goes up to him and just says, Give me one more task. And Denyazov thinks about this for a second, and he goes, Please, Petya, do me this favor. Don't stick your nose in a place it shouldn't be. And Petya is rebuked by this, just a slight, because it seems like they were friends, but I think Denyazov is doing this to distance himself from Petya and to protect Petya, because he feels almost like a father figure on this battlefield. The battle begins, shot rings out, and Petya is full of adrenaline. They see that some French soldiers are down and that this victory should be theirs, but we still have a few more pages in this chapter to go. And everywhere Petya's turning to try and get a kill or whatever he assumes he's supposed to do in battle, he sees another Frenchman has fallen. Dang, I'm gonna get the next one. And he is naive because he's running towards where the shots are coming from from the french not thinking about oh if i get shot i could die and as he's charging forward to where these french are gathered in a courtyard his hands slip off the reins he seems to do a waving motion and he falls off of his horse when the other russians come to discover him they see that he's been shot in the head Petya, one of the youngest innocent characters of the book, most innocent, has been brutally killed, and Dolokhov rides up. He doesn't really say anything about the body. He scoffs and tells Denyazov that one's finished. Denyazov gets down off his horse, takes Petya's hands, head in his hands, and just, you know, is struggling to hold back a weep, a sigh of grief, because this boy who was just a night before sharing his life story and his possessions, his delicious raisins with the rest of the men, is dead. And this is the boy of who he was very close to the Rostov family with. It's brutal. It's quick. It's realistic. It's a, I'm not going to say a greater death than Helene gets, but at least it's here in the pages. But in a way, it's like, why? Why Petya? 
And we end this chapter with Dolokhov and Denyazov retaking the Russian prisoners from the French, and we learn that one of these prisoners was our other daddy of the book, Pierre Bezukhov. Chapter 12, we learn that Pierre's trek to this location has not been an easy one. They have been forced to march to an undisclosed destination for a very long time. The French don't seem to know what to do with these prisoners, and as they're marching, the Russians just keep, uh, you know, attacking the French and stealing their supplies, leaving the prisoners with less and less. There's been many false alarms, the army is in disarray, they're passing bodies of dead horses and dead men. It is not a pretty sight. And of the 330 prisoners, there's now about a third of that left, with only a hundred or so prisoners left. And the French soldiers who are guarding these prisoners are like, why are we dragging around this dead weight? These Russian prisoners mean nothing to us. They're either dying, getting sick, or being shot in the head. So I don't really see it in our best interest to protect them anymore. So the mood is about to sway, and that is not a good thing for these Russian prisoners who are still alive. There have been some unsuccessful escape attempts on these Russian prisoners' part, but they have not been met with good results. Um, the escaping parties have been caught and then shot, so it's kind of up in the air whether what these remaining few should do. And Pierre, somehow on this march, has been reunited with Karatinev and his little dog, as we've seen in the previous chapters, this guy who helped him out, soul dude who re, um, you know, ignited Pierre's spirits, religion, sense of hope. Karatiev, ever since a few days of starting this march, has become incredibly sick. He smells, he is dying, and Pierre can no longer bring himself to even see him or witness him. I think it's out of the fact, it's not a mean-spirited thing, I think he just doesn't want to see this person die in front of him. In Pierre's imprisonment, he's learned many lessons, yes, but the most important one he's realized is that there's nothing to be frightened of in life. One lives and then one dies. It's an endless cycle, and people just need to get used to it and accept it. So Pierre is not afraid of anything anymore. Pierre thinks of kind of being connived into the marriage with Helene and says that that doesn't mean anything now. It was his own fault, his own thoughts, but now he sees better. He sees the bigger humanistic picture of it all. And he still does not give up because every day when he's forced to walk on his barefoot and very sore, injured feet, he thinks, how am I going to do this? But the next night he realizes, oh, I have done that and tomorrow I will do what I need to do to survive as well. And Pierre does this, survives all this by not thinking about himself or the others that are dying around him, but trying to think of joyful things, things that, you know, would help him cling to his life, even though it is a horrible situation, and he does not know how much longer he has to go. Chapter 13, Pierre's march continues, and he sees all the death and decay around him, but still this little dog that has accompanied uh, Karatiev throughout this ordeal is still trucking along merrily. And you may be thinking, why is Dog here without Karatiev? Well, Pierre, in its pouring rain, is just addressing like, oh, if it's gonna rain, it's going to pour even more, so just let it happen. And he thinks the only way I'm getting through this all is because of my previous night's conversation with Karatiev. And sitting with Karatiev is Platon, who's this dude who helped Pierre, the old dude who is selling all the clothes and such for the soldiers. He's still trekking along too, and he's giving some sage advice to the supposedly dying Karatiev. And Platon is trying to eke out a story that Karatiev always shares that seems to be about God, a merchant and his family that has brought high spirits to these men, but it's a struggle to get this story out tonight. 
And this story is a bit of an emotional downer, but a spiritual high point, because it's about a merchant who was falsely accused of killing someone, he was uh, tortured, tried, and sent to work prison, and when asked, like, why did you suffer in silence, the man replies, I didn't suffer for myself, I suffered for the world, because without someone who can carry the burden of said suffering, we're all screwed in the end. I asked God for death, and for some reason probably to maintain this quota of suffering versus release, he has allowed me to survive, even in my pain. The one this old merchant in the story is telling um, the story to is actually the one who committed the murder, and he reveals, like, oh my gosh, I'm so sorry I've done this, how could you ever forgive me? And the old merchant goes, I will forgive you. I forgive you because I too am suffering from my own sins, we are all suffering together. When the truth is brought to light in this story, the people try to release this old man, but they see that he has already died throughout the process and he cannot be rewarded for his suffering. But Karatiev turns to Pierre and the others who know the end of the story and say, but don't you see God rewarded him? God killed him. He was finally dead. So he had no more suffering to bear. And Pierre admires Karatiev's face because that's where the true beauty of the story is he's like talking through passionate joyful tears and he's just happy to see this guy get some release in his horrible predicament that he's in chapter 14 a french officer calls out to the russian prisoners and says to everyone to get to their places and there is a manner of excitement going throughout the crowd no one knows what they're being called for but the feeling and pessimist within me doesn't think it's the best thing a carriage is rolling by and everyone's going, could it be the Emperor? Could it be Napoleon? Who could it be? But it's just one of the marshals who makes direct eye contact with Pierre, scowls, but Pierre, being the better person, says, like, behind that scowl, I'm sure there was some compassion. Karatiev is being propped up by a tree or something, not looking in the best of spirits, has tears in his eyes and a look of solemnity on his face, and motions to Pierre to come over so he could speak to him, but Pierre doesn't want to deal with that right now, so he can't muster the feelings to go over and talk to Karatiev. Pierre sees two French soldiers talking to Karatiev, who is trying to limp away. He turns away, knowing what's going to happen. There is a shot that rings out. The French soldiers who have shot this gun run past Pierre, look timidly at him, and Pierre goes, But just a few days we were all laughing at the around the campfire together. And the dog starts howling, and Pierre doesn't want to acknowledge what just happened. Karatiev's been shot and killed in cold blood because he was not strong enough to continue on this journey, and Pierre does not want to come to terms with this, so he denies looking at the body. I know, I apologize. Really heavy chapters back to back to back to back. War is hell, y'all. We should have known. The book is called War and Peace. What I wouldn't give for the escapism of the opera right now, or one of Vera or Julie's stupid problems. Chapter 15, the prisoners and the company arrive in Shamshevo. And Pierre eats a little something and goes directly to bed. We know when Pierre sleeps, especially during a traumatic moment in his life, he's due to experience some weird dreams. And Karatiev's story about suffering in silence is playing on Pierre's dreams during this moment, where he calls out to Karatiev and an old teacher comes up to him holding a globe, and this globe has many moving shapes on it, and he ex explained or explains to Pierre that uh, this is the world. It's constantly moving, we're all striving, but it doesn't really matter in the long run of things. 
in the center of the globe is God, and that is the most important thing to know, and look at how we, you know, come and go to this planet. He points to a spot on the map, and it blinks out, and he goes, that was Karatiev, his time was important, but he had to go. And then Pierre is woken up by a French officer shouting at him. The reason why this French soldier is shouting at someone sitting next to Pierre is because that little dog has stayed with the camp the whole time, as happy as can be. And this causes a wash of memory for Pierre about meeting Platon and Karatiev, experiencing joy in his youth, meeting some Polish woman on his balcony in Kiev. And he's awoken from the stupor once more due to gunshots. Our story has caught up with themselves. The Russian Cossacks and soldiers have come to free these prisoners, and all of these prisoners weep tears of joys. Everyone's kissing one another, and Pierre doesn't know what to do with himself. He's so emotionally overcome by this situation that he's free. Dolokhov is the one who freed them, but he's going about this in a very cruel, unfeeling manner, making cruel glances at these uh, prisoners, and we see that Denyazov is trying to bury the body of young Petya Rostov. Chapter 16 is a very short chapter, less than a page long, in which is described how the French troops are starving, getting beat up, and disbanding, even another under Napoleon's great leadership. Napoleon is none the wiser, and he's not painted in the best light, because he's just going to get out of Russia in order to save his own skin. So, truly just a man, as Pierre had theorized in the beginning of the novel, not a god among men. Chapter 17, this fleeing of the French from the Russians is compared to a game of blind man's bluff. One pursues, one chases, one runs, and the cycle repeats itself. Since the Russians know this country better than Napoleon, Napoleon makes a general and obvious call, runs into the Russians' vanguard. They are afraid. They do not want to fight. They realize that this is going to be a bad time. And this causes the French to lose their will, separate, and scatter to the winds. And everybody's fleeing because they want to live, and those who could not flee either surrendered and or died. Chapter 18, the narrator lets us know that the French are shooting themselves in the foot despite historians' ramblings on Napoleon's profound plans. Napoleon is trying to hype himself up, saying, I've been the emperor long enough, it's time that I be a general. And then he proceeds to flee. The historians will describe this retreat as grand in the good sense of the word Napoleon's in his fur coats going, all right, mon amis, let's go home. Meanwhile, everybody's dying around him and Napoleon's doing it just to save his soul. But there is only one step from the sublime to the ridiculous. That's a good quote. I might pocket that one. And ending the chapter with this quote, and it never enters anyone's head that the recognition of greatness not measurable by the measure of good and bad is only a recognition of one's own insignificance and immeasurable littleness. For us, with the measures of good and bad given us by Christ, nothing is immeasurable, and there is no greatness where there is no simplicity, goodness, and truth. I think that translates to we can only measure what's good or bad for ourselves and there's no limit to that. We can say we did things with the good or bad intentions that we set them out to do, but in the end, there's no real litmus scale for where to place our actions at. And in our final chapter, the narrator slash Tolstoy, chapter 19, tells us, Russians, I know you're probably pissed reading this, but why have our Russians taken so long to defeat an army that I know and you know they could have defeated the whole time? Well, it's because of history. 
Historians will say that Kutuzov did this or didn't do this or someone else in power didn't act when they were supposed to act, but we can't judge a man for not being in his shoes in the direct moment, and most of these historians weren't there in the current line of fire. They go on to say that maybe the goal was to capture Napoleon, but there's no real bread-and-butter facts to support this. Needless to say, our narrator proclaims that the War of 1812 was one of the most violent and disastrous wars that's ever graced this planet, and there's no real reason neither side won. Both sides lost enormous amounts of men, their pride, their country left in ruins, the capital, Moscow, gone. War is unpredictable. There are no real rules and decorum when it comes to it. The plan for the Russians to cut off Napoleon is fruitless because what were they really going to do if they cut him off? All in all, it was just protecting the house. The Russians got invaded, the French entered, and they pursued them out with a whip in hand, but not physically beating them to a pulp as they had been done. We get tons and tons of wounded animal imagery throughout the book, and I think that's the most common analogy that we've seen. Just interesting that Tolstoy will go there time and time again. It does make sense. And much like a wounded animal myself, dear readers, we've reached another fantastic end for a weekly episode of Drink and Read. Of course, just a casual reminder to uh, subscribe, listen, and rate this podcast on most podcasting platforms, including Anchor, Podbean, and Apple Podcast. If you like me, Jonathan Kwiatkowski, and my sometimes witty commentary, feel free, you're more than welcome to check out my other two podcasts, one being Nightcaps at the Theater, where me and a few co-hosts, uh, Matt Cabrera and Mark Zebro Jr. check out a few movies and get a little drizzy drunk during that time. And then if anime is more of your cup of tea, well then have I got a podcast for you. Check out Anime Was Not a Mistake, currently in the midst of our anime masterpiece um, theater segment where we took a look at Asian cinema. That we is not the royal we, it is of course me and my co-host Dan Ryan. My co-host Dan Ryan and I, sorry that... My brain is addled after reading the majority of War and Peace. Anyone's brain would be addled at this point, but we are nearing the end. We've only got one more section of Volume 4 to go. And join us, why don't you, next week for Volume 4, Part 4, Chapters 1 through 19, before we wrap this up and head into our epilogue. As always, dear readers, before we go, just a casual reminder to drink and read responsibly. Prochet! Thank you for listening to Drink and Read. Hosting for this podcast brought to you by Anchor. This podcast can also be found on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Pocket Cast, and more. If you have any thoughts or questions, or any beverage recommendations, please feel free to reach out to us on drinkandreadpod at Instagram. Support of this podcast is brought to you by listeners like you. Thank you.